0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. And today's episode is episode number 231. We are several months into our fifth year, and we're going to keep going. So there you go. Um I would ask you to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and also if you would be so kind as to subscribe to our YouTube channel and give us a thumbs up. It's really just to help people find us and you know our message is one of hope. And that there's help available for those who either are addicted themselves or have loved ones who are addicted. And when you subscribe or when you like our podcasts, then more people get those messages. So that would be great if you could do that. So today we have an interview with a gentleman named Brock Bevel. Um, Brock has his own podcast um, called Chase the Vase and we'll ask him to tell us about that. But he's a family man. He's got seven children, six daughters and one son. He's a retired police officer and he had a horrific accident and ultimately he had to retire from those accidents. But as we've heard from many others, Because he was prescribed opioids as a result of the injuries he sustained from his accident, he became an addict. And we will talk to him and go down that road as to how his story ended up. So without further ado, let's talk to Brock Bevel. Brock Bevel, thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us today.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited. I I cannot I'm finally here. Like I think we've been I've been trying to get a hold of you guys for a year now.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sorry it took so long, but I'm glad you are finally here. So, take us back to what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? What made you go into the career that you went into?
1: You you know what's interesting? Uh, people they I love that question. When I was in it as a child, I thought it was really it, it was good. Right. I I was raised by a very strict mother and father from Mississippi. There were eight. There was eight of us. So there was four boys, four girls. There was almost two families. So there was the four of us. And then there was a break in the action and then four more. So my mom and dad put a lot of energy and effort on, I would say, the first four and the bottom four. I didn't want to say they got left out, but mom and dad were tired if that makes any sense.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and I remember when I was a little, a youngster, man, I was snooping through my dad's closet and I came across a bagged, a bagged suit. And I, I was like, oh, what is this? I pulled it out. And I remember seeing the Mesa police uniform. And so my dad, before I knew it, before I knew him, of course, he, he was now an educator but before that, in his prior life, he was a police officer. And I remember donning. I I took it out of the bag. I put that thing on. It was like hanging down past my fingertips. And But I looked in the mirror and I remember the feeling that empowerment that that uniform gave me. Not empowerment for the negative, but like I I felt something special. And so that was kind of you know, my goal, even when I was a youngster, they asked, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a police officer. That is what I always wanted to be. So growing up, uh, super athletic. My, my father was a football coach. We were, we were just raised in the sports. And so if it was football season, that's what we were doing. And um, when, I, when I hit 19 years old, I left the country and I served a mission for my church, lived out there for two years. So that shows you kind of the structure
0: where were but you just I was curious
1: in, I was in Paraguay, oh wow, yeah, between Brazil and Argentina, right there on the on the equator, yeah, so so what's interesting is me speaking fluent Spanish helped me get on the police department. There was a big shift in Mesa where we had a lot of Latins coming in, a lot of Hispanics coming in, and it was getting kind of out of control where we could not the police department could not communicate. It just bilingual. They couldn't talk, so I remember when I went through the process, there was uh, five hundred and fifty applicants, and they were taking seven of us, and the oh. majority of us did speak Spanish, and so that was a huge blessing. I was, I was, I, I guess I want to say I was qualified to, enough to to meet the minimum bar to get on, and so <laughs> I think what separated me was the police department, or what was being able to speak Spanish,
0: right. And so how old were you when you became a policeman?
1: I was 20, 22. So I was a youngster.
0: Okay. Had you done college? Had you done any college?
1: I had done some college before I went on my mission, but I realized I didn't like school. And, and what's funny is, Joni, um, I actually became a police officer, so I didn't have to go to school <laughs> because I was so terrible and terrified of math. <laughs> So I know it sounds crazy, but I just, I avoided it like the plague.
0: Okay. Understood. You're not alone in that. So, okay. So you're a police officer and were you undercover? What did you do as a police officer?
1: Yeah. So, you know, most officers, they have to start, they have to work three years in patrol before you can even go anywhere. My three years in patrol prepared me for what was coming next. I realized that I hated to work patrol. I hated the call to call. I hated going to neighbor disputes and the dog barking call and my neighbor peed in my yard or he's throwing trash in my yard and just these stupid calls. And I really did. I was like, I just got tired of dumb stuff. And so I kind of changed my my vision and I started really focusing on probable cause and arresting people for drugs. And that was the most excitement. Like if I arrested a dude with, with a lot of weed or a lot of Coke, uh, it, it like made me excited because it was like that chase. It was a puzzle and you had to put all the pieces together. You had to get into the car or into the pockets or in the home or do a search warrant. And it just felt like it was real investigations
0: Right. And, right. And you were doing something about the problem, too.
1: Yeah. And growing up, like if if I saw a guy smoking a cigarette, I was like, oh, man, that who is that guy? I can't believe, you know, I was so judgmental as a youngster because that's how I was brought up. That's how I was trained. Right. We don't smoke. We don't drink. We don't do drugs. We don't have sex. We don't do any of that stuff. Right. And so it it allowed me to kind of shift into a different light and it allowed me to become kind of a dual, a different person, if that makes sense.
0: It does. It makes total sense. So, and you liked that part of the work, and I get that, you know, because you're, uh, from my viewpoint, you're really making a difference. And as we said before the podcast, I want to thank you personally for the work that you did as a police officer, because I think sometimes y'all don't get acknowledged. You Mm. get, you know, attacked, but maybe not acknowledged for the good that you did. So... Bring us to what ended your career because that is very relevant to what we're talking about today in terms of addiction. So take us down that path.
1: Yeah, there, there's two two incidents that I really like to share that mm-hmm. uh, to kind of help solidify what, what what I was going through. So the first one was December 27, two days after Christmas. It was 2001. I'll make the story short. There was a pursuit. A guy had a had a, a weapon. He was threatening to kill. It was going to be his 50 UI. He doesn't want to stop. He's going to flee from the police. He ends up going for hours, finally drives into a cul-de-sac. We come in and do a felony stop on him. And I remember he got out. I was the first one on scene. I blocked him in. He gets out of his truck. He's holding a knife. And when you talk about, there's so much going on in the nation today about law enforcement this shooting this incident was perfect he got out of the car and we i wish it was recorded for for training but we we did every single use of force that we could to stop this guy and i want people to understand like we verbally talked to him we went hard hands we tasered him we pepper sprayed him we the canine bit him twice uh, i mean we bean we shot him with a beanbag gun for him to give up and he refused and then he got back into his truck threw it in drive, and tried to ram us. And so I, I shot and killed him through the windshield. And, and I remember, Johnny, when I pulled him out of the vehicle, when he got out of the vehicle and he was laying there, and there was, it, was, it was pretty graphic. There was blood. I mean, we shot him in the face. That was the only place that we could shoot this guy because he was in a vehicle. And I remember how mad I got I'm like, this is two days after Christmas. Who is this guy to make us? Because we did everything to stop him, and he refused and got back into his truck and drove at us. And I'm like, what is it about this addiction thing? Why? Why is he so drunk that he could not make the next right decision? And so, so I, I wanted to know more about addiction, right? I, I, I kind of like at that point in time said, there's something, there's something more to this. Mm-hmm. And then, and then to answer your question. It was in uh, it was April eleventh the next year, and we got some street information. And Joni, I want to tell your listeners: if you need intel on anything going on in the streets, the prostitutes have all the information. Okay, okay, they're street level informants. They're amazing. They know what's going on in the streets, and so if you need info, go to them. And, and, and so what happened was we had one that we used as an informant. We would trade. She would give us information, we wouldn't arrest her. That was the deal. And so on this particular night on April 11th, she tells us about this woman who is going to be bringing her 12 year old daughter to a drug deal. She was going to exchange the daughter for drugs. Okay. So she was going to let the girl go do a trick with this man. Right. And she was going to get drugs for it. And and you know how it is, Johnny. Street level information is rarely accurate. But on this date, it happened like clockwork. The truck that the lady was supposed to be driving pulls into this this complex, into this this, uh, commercial building. She pulls in, driven or passenger was a 12-year-old daughter. The local drug dealer who we knew came up on his bike, pulled into the passenger side, goes to open the door. And then we come in and infiltrate it. And she didn't want to go to jail. So she decides to take her vehicle and throw it in reverse. And as she pulls out, she runs my partner's left foot over. He gets caught under the front tire. He falls and she runs over his back. (gasps) And I'm at the back of the vehicle. And when she did that, she caught my right foot under the tire and I snapped my ankle. And then I go to step to brace myself and she catches my knee and blows my knee out. And so what's crazy was the adrenaline was nuts. And I was so pissed off. I'm like, I'm catching this lady. She reverses out. She gets stuck on a median. We're about to shoot her, but she gives up, right? And turns the vehicle off and we're able to uh, take her to jail. Now, the issue here is, is now, now what? I have to go to a doctor. I have to have numerous reconstructive knee surgeries on my ACL. And I remember the first appointment. Now, I had tore my ACL on my other knee two or three years earlier in a foot pursuit. So I knew this doctor. The doctor had become my friend. And the first day I went back to him, he's like, oh, I can't believe you did this. But he goes, hey, you, I'm going to give you some medicine, but you won't get addicted to it. You'll never be addicted because you're a cop. And when I heard that, I was like, what? Thinking in my head, okay, well. I guess cops are prone or, or, or they're like immune. immune, They're immune immune to addiction. Yeah. What,
0: what is he talking about? I don't know. What did he give you? Was it Oxycontin?
1: It was, it was, that was the first. And you know, it was funny because I was able to start doctor shopping him because I blew my hand out as well. I had a right ankle. Doctors were different. So I could go to one doctor and say, Hey, the last time that stuff made me queasy, that made me sick. Can you give me something for it? So they gave me, they upped my medicine or they changed it. So I always had like this plethora of medicine and well, let's just fast forward because of the nature of my injuries, the department has to retire me mm. and they, they bring me in, they sit me down and they say, okay, you're no longer stable. You can't do this job. So we're medically retiring you. So imagine going from living a life of nitro circus, like just fast, arresting people, working narcotics, undercover investigations, to shifting to now you're the dad of the home. You're changing your baby's diapers. You're taking them to the park. Your plan. And my identity, Joni, was gone. And I'm not saying that stuff's bad. I'm just saying that wasn't who I was at that time of my life.
0: You weren't prepared for it. I mean, it's different no. if you finish your 30 years and you're going to retire because you know you're going to do that. But how many years had you been in at that point? Seven years.
1: Yeah. And I, and I thought, I thought, I mean, my identity was 100% wrapped up into who I was. Mm. I was the cool guy. I come to parties or I hung out with my friends and everybody's like, oh, come here, man. Come here, come here. Tell me your stories. And so I was always I was always telling stories and I felt, you know, empowered. I loved it. And then what now it's like, oh, so what happened is that addiction that could never happen because my doctor said I started utilizing these pills to quash, to numb some of the pain that I was going through. Because you've got to understand this is what a lot of people don't understand. As a law enforcement officer, I had a really good team, Mm -hmm. but we were doing a job. And the job took a lot of time. And I remember about a week to two weeks into it, I'm like, why aren't these guys calling me? Why aren't they coming and visiting me? I was on their team. I was in shootings with them. I was was wrecking cars with them. I was taking down bank robbers and some like crazy situations. And now these guys aren't talking to me. And so of course that depression, that loneliness sets in. And so I noticed that the more opioids I took, The better I felt because Mm. I forgot all about that
0: yep you know it's not dissimilar I don't think you can correct me if I'm wrong it's not dissimilar to the guy who leaves the military because all of a sudden you don't have that group anymore or we had a fellow on on the podcast who you know was an NFL football player and just got fired just like cold turkey no no retirement because he's too old just Boom, hand on shoulder, you're out of here and you don't have a group anymore. And they still have a job to do, so they're not thinking about you, home changing the diapers. They're just thinking about what what the next thing is they have to handle.
1: Yeah. No, you're you're exactly right. I mean, my my story is no different.
0: Well, don't... except that, yeah, it's it isn't and it is. But keep yeah. going. I'll be quiet now. You are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
1: So, so what's interesting is I started looking at my life and then I start making really bad decisions. I I, I want the chaos that I was living in the police department. Like I loved, and, and, and users will tell you this all the time. Like I was more comfortable in the chaos than peacefulness. I, you know, that's just the way our minds are wired. And, and so I started reaching outside of marriage. I started text messaging other women. I started sending pictures, and I, I was just living this life of lies, deceit. Uh, it was just, and I thought I was good at it. And I really wasn't, even though I, I, I could mask the addiction point because I did work undercover. I knew how to talk to people. I knew the right words to say, but my wife and my kids, they weren't fooled. They knew what was going on course it led to divorce, uh, more separation from my kids, more time loss, more addiction, more loneliness. And, and it just kept steamrolling into the point where I think you've read the bio is, is it took me 10 years. It took me 10 years. And I, I my, my point of no return. I know that's what you call it, right? Yep. yeah, the, the addiction podcast. I love that, uh, is was on a morning and it was the same routine I did every morning. I'd get up, go to the bathroom, open the medicine cabinet, crack me a pill, put it in my mouth, drink the water, because I was never out of it. And I never got to the point where I had to shoot up heroin because I was a cop and I could go to the doctor and say, Hey, look at these scars. Look, I need more medication. And they would do it every time. And so this morning was different. I opened the med cabinet, took it and then shut it. And I looked into the mirror of the medicine cabinet and it shined into my room. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, Brock, you live in a crack house. Your house, your home is a crack house. And it was a disaster. There was, I remember there was like 36 Polar Pop, under, I mean, it was just clothes everywhere, shoes everywhere, underwear. I mean, it was bad. It stunk. It wasn't clean but my medicine cabinet was perfect in, in a hundred percent. It would, I knew how many pills were on it. I had the pill bottles written everything. And I remember I opened it back up and I was so enraged and so mad at where I had fallen. I took every single one of them, opened them and dumped them in the toilet and then flushed it. Now I have to tell the listeners out there, don't do that. That yep. was the, that that's not the way that you have to recover. Please understand that there are so many amazing people out there, medical treatment that they can give you, it, they can help you through the detox process. I did not have that opportunity.
0: Well, you didn't have it or you didn't take it.
1: I, at that point in time, I didn't have it because I had to expose myself in my addiction. I didn't uh. tell anybody Nobody knew that I was struggling. Are you sure nobody knew? Well, they. I, I think I would say they like they, my wife, uh, my ex-wife and people around me. Um, I had a best buddy that I was giving my pills to. He was taking them down and selling them for me. So he knew. But
0: the, the only most, reason I bring that up, Brock, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. But when you were talking about how you you felt you had it so well hidden and you felt you had your addiction so much under control, I think so many addicts feel that way. And yet the people around them, they know there's something up. It's never as well hidden as you think it is.
1: Yeah. The only reason I say I think it was well hidden is because I'd alienated everybody in my life. I'd pushed them out. I wasn't contacting family. I had no friends showing up like, and that was the scary part for me is I did isolate everybody that when the process started, Nobody was coming to save me. Nobody knew where I was at. Nobody knew I was going through this. And so on me, on on purpose, I pushed those people out of my life so I could act a fool. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, but you are right. They knew the close people to me knew.
0: If nothing else, they wonder where you are, excuse me, and why you're no longer in touch with them. And I'm going to bet that probably some of them thought, oh, you know, we think he might be doing drugs. We're not really sure. But I totally diverted you and I apologize. So there you are all by yourself. You got no more drugs. Take us from there.
1: Well, that's where I wish I would have had some scuba diving equipment or plumbing experience because I would have dove into there because I realized quickly that that was a mistake because now I'm out. I can't go back to the doctor. They had just done a huge refill for me, and now I'm stuck. And so what I did is I was like, okay, you know what? You've been talking for 10 years about detox and about changing your life, getting yourself back on track with God. Why don't you put your, your money where your mouth is? Like I, I, I told myself, nut up, like show some balls and let's go. And this was, this was the worst time of my life. Uh, I, I went downstairs, got some water, got all the stuff, everything I could, and I brought it in preparation for this detox. I wasn't ready or had, did I know what I was going to get into? So imagine if you will, the worst flu you've ever had. Imagine defecating on yourself, throwing up on yourself. I was thrown, I mean, after the first day when there's nothing else in your stomach to throw up, now it just gets to become bile. And I remember there was a point in there, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to blow out my backbone. It's going to come out my mouth in one of these one of these episodes of throw up. And it was just horrible. And I'm like, I cannot believe that an opioid would have this reaction. And so- I laid, in, I laid in the shower for three days, and then here we go, another me thinking, oh, I'm going to negotiate with God. He's going to get me through this. And so I'm like, okay, God, here we go. Listen, if you you see what happens right there is I'm starting to tell God <laughs> what we're going to do. And I heard him, and a lot of people have heard my story, and they said you were probably hallucinating by this time. I know for a fact that I heard God giggle. and He's like, you're not even close. You're not even there yet. Because if I let you up and let you out of the shower, you're going to go find a pill just to to make yourself feel better temporarily. And then all this is for nothing. And what was crazy was in the back of my mind, that's exactly what I was feeling. I just wanted a pill to make it go away. And, and, And sad to say, as tough as I thought I was, had there been a pill there, I probably would have taken it. just to get out of pain. But I was blessed that I didn't have any. This detox lasted for seven days, in and out of the shower, ice cold water, warm water, throwing up, defecating, eating, trying to put enough water in my system. And what happened was the seventh day, I literally felt like, we talk about that moment of a point of no return. Like I told God, I'm like, either take my life because I can't, I don't think I can go through more of this. I, I I have nothing left in me. I'm, I have nothing. I'm powerless. I'm giving it all to you. But I ask you, if you give me an opportunity to get out of the shower, change my life, I will, I will be different for other people. I will help them with their process. And I know you're, you're, you're old enough to remember the whole Kogan days of the WWF when he when they were raising his hand, it would drop and raise his hand and drop. And I remember it felt like that third time I was like, oh, man. And I felt that power come in hmm. and it energized me and it gave me the, the power to get up. And it was at that moment that I stood up, walked out of that shower and have never. I mean, I'm almost in January 11th. I'll be 12 years sober.
0: Wow. So and and well, well done. I mean, I yes. don't think, you know, I don't think a lot of the people listening I don't know. I mean, you—you yeah, you did it, man. You cold turkeyed your way through this. And as you said, there are man, there are other ways. I mean, I think you know it. Without being too evaluative, it sounds like it was something you had to go through. But well done, you, and well done for staying sober. Because there's one thing to get clean and sober. Because mm. people will do that in rehab over and over but the staying clean and sober. Well, tell us what it was like for you.
1: You know, and I'm, I'm glad you said that. Everybody has their own journey. Everybody has their own point of no return. Had, had I had an opportunity to change? um, I, I know that that was my journey. I had to go through that pain because that is one of the things that keeps me sober today is that fear of detoxing again. I don't think I would have another detox. I don't think so. If I relapse, I'd be like, oh, no, hell no. I I will never go through that, right? And so that fear in the back of my mind, number one, I have an absolute understanding of my higher power. That's in recovery. That's one of the things that we promote is finding someone more powerful than you. Yep. And so that was the number one thing is my relationship with my higher power. And number two, the fear of losing what I have today.
0: Interesting. Yep. And what do you have today? What's your life like now?
1: Well, you know, I, that's what I do now. Now, I I mean, I started a recovery program. I own my own rehab. I did that for five and a half years. And I really felt like, I mean, to be honest with you, I was missing the boat. I was missing the people that I really feel like my, that I gel with. So I I left the rehab and now I work primarily with first responders, veterans who were struggling with PTSD and addiction. Wow! And and so that's what I do. And and I I run a business called chase the vase and I, and I run challenges with these guys. Tell
0: me what chase the vase, where does that come from? I looked at it and I, I looked at the Facebook page and I, I don't understand chase the vase. What does that mean?
1: Chase the Vase, it's, it stems from a World War I story where an individual was injured in battle, came home, wanted a job, and he was so equipped as a handicap um, that his boss put him on a test. And the test was called the test of the blue vase. And so his boss sent him to get a, a vase and return the vase to him. But there were men who tried to circumvent that. They tried to sabotage his chase right and at the end of the story he ends up getting the vase he overcomes all these obstacles gets the vase delivers the vase to his boss and what i what the vase represents for us is we're always chasing something 12 years ago 11 and a half years ago i was chasing sobriety that was right. my vase maybe it's to become a better father that would that could be someone's vase so you're all. it's almost like that that all elusive metal or goal that you need to accomplish. And so Chase the Face just represents it will be done and I will do it. No matter what you throw at me, I'm going to accomplish it. I'll go over any, anything. I'll get sober to do it. I'll, I'll become a better father. I'll research it. I'll just do those things to be able to grab it.
0: I like that. I really really like that. And it's I think it's such a part of sobriety is to have a goal. Because when you're addicted, the goal is get more drugs and stay high on a regular basis. So when that's not the goal anymore, you know what is your goal? To get your kids back, to give back to other people, to help people struggling and that's huge.
1: I I so love that you say that. Uh, That to me is the, is the like epicenter of who we are as addicts. If you've overcome addiction, you can accomplish anything. You can accomplish anything. And so if you could just take that same drive, that same energy you had in the chase for drugs and you train, turn it into the chase for maybe it's a financial freedom. Maybe it's just to have your vehicle. Maybe it's to get a license back. You have all the tools because you've done it before.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we've had other people say, you know, approach your sobriety the same way you approached your addiction. Mm. Do you know? And it it makes total sense. That's awesome what you're doing, helping veterans and helping other people who are addicted. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. I, I looked at some of your podcast episodes and... You're a fellow podcaster. It's awesome what you do. I, I appreciate it so much. I appreciate what you went through. And now do you have kids? Are you able to have your kids now? And
1: I do. I have five of my own. And okay. so they're all over the place. Three of them are almost married. I have a son that's, that's an Anaheim on his mission. Uh, so I, I have them back. I have great relationships with most of them. I say most of them because I mean, there's, Even 12 years later, there's still some animosity that, you know, so I don't want people to think, oh, you get sober and everything's, everything's beautiful. It's not, but guess what? I, I'm, I'm well today and I know that I can keep working on that. So then I remarried and I have two beautiful stepchildren who live with us on a daily basis. So I have six girls in total and one son.
0: Wow. So,
1: (laughs) yeah, God has a sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes, he does. Well, I cannot thank you enough for everything that you're doing. And before I let you go, um, I want you to, if you have one message to give people, whether they are loved ones um, who are just around addiction or addicts, if you just had one message, what, what would that message be?
1: There is hope. There's hope. Don't give up. I mean, that's, that is, in a nutshell, what all we all need to remember.
0: And that's, the, that's like the total purpose of this podcast, really, is to give people hope, to let them know they're not alone. There are people out there, such as yourself, who are there for them and are willing to help. If people want to find you, how do they find you, Brock?
1: They can find me at my website's Chase the Vase. I'm on Instagram as Chase the Vase or Brock Bevel and Facebook as well. So Chase the Vase, you're going to find me.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for telling your story today, Brock. I really appreciate it. And thank you for everything you do and thank you for your service in law enforcement.
1: Yes, ma'am. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Brock's story of recovery while harrowing, hopefully will spur some of you on to getting help, getting treatment. You don't have to do it cold turkey the way he did. He did it because it was necessary for him and now he's come out the other side and doesn't wanna go back there. If you know somebody who needs help, please reach out. And if you yourself need help, please reach out. There's hope, there there are so many people out there who just wanna help you. So you're not alone, even though you may think you're alone and you're also not fooling anybody. So take this opportunity and reach out. We'll have another interview next week September is, I believe it's Drug Addiction Awareness Month. I know that um, this is actually being recorded on, um, I know tomorrow is August 31st, which is Overdose Awareness Day, and our hearts go out to the loved ones of people who have overdosed. So we will talk to you again next week. Have a good one. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.